All right, let's get after it. Hebrews chapter 8, if you have a Bible, uh, if you don't, there should be one, uh, a black hardback in front of you underneath a chair. Hebrews chapter 8 is where we'll be. Uh, we'll get started. We've got lots to do this morning. We're going to try to get through uh, the chapter, Hebrews 8, verse 113. If you are with us um, and haven't been following along with us, we are in a series on the book of Hebrews. Uh, we're walking through it, uh, and so we are making good progress. We're in chapter 8, more than halfway through. We'll pick up this morning in verse 1. Lots to do. Um, Jesus found me, and I say that on purpose. He found me, I think, according to the scriptures. That's how it works. That's the process. Uh, sometimes it feels like we find him, um, but he's finding us. Jesus found me uh, right before I became a senior in high school. Uh, so some of us know the story. For about a year, I had been um, struggling uh, very much. Uh, I got very, very sick, got panic attacks, uh, developed into panic disorder, agoraphobia, uh, insomnia, um, led to a unfortunate relationship with anti-anxiety medication. Uh, and so just a very dark, dark time in my life. Uh, and so I remember after about a year of this, uh, being in my, in my room on a sleepless night the summer uh, shortly before my senior year of high school started. I, I was at my parents yesterday, and it was my brother's room now. It used to be my room. I was in there with him uh, playing around, and kind of the memory came back. Because I remember I was up against the wall uh, one night, sleepless night, uh, very depressed, again, just in a very dark place. And for whatever reason, I decided to start reading uh, the Bible, picking up dust kind of in the corner of my room. I picked up the Bible, opened up to Matthew, and started reading through Matthew. And I remember... A few nights later, I was done, I finished the book of Matthew, and for whatever reason, it clicked. Like, it clicked in my heart, it clicked in my mind, um, and so all the, the Bible stories I had heard growing up, the, the examples of Christian men and women living out their faith, it all kind of clicked. Uh, when I got to the end of Matthew, chapter 28, Jesus has resurrected, he comes to the disciples, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me, go. Go make disciples. And I remember thinking, at the time, um, really all I knew was, one, I had made a, a very dark nasty mess of my life. Um, I, I just knew that it was not in a good place, and I was looking for a way out of it, and I didn't really care what that way was. I mean, I wanted out. I didn't want to stay there, and, and honestly, didn't care how it was. And I got to the end of Matthew, and I thought, he's my hope. I mean, he's the hope that I have. He's the, the only hope, really, for my life. And what's interesting about that, and about that time, was at the time, it was a very open-ended hope. Like, I didn't really know what to expect, from Jesus. I didn't really know what to expect. I didn't know what was coming for me. I just knew whatever he gave would be good news for me. I knew it was good news. I didn't know kind of the specifics of what that would be. What would, look like? what would that look like in my life? In a life that had, I had made such a mess out of. Um, and so I think that turned out to be good for me because what happens oftentimes, what I've observed, and so over the years, I've been blessed to study the scriptures and come more fully to figure out what Jesus does for us. Like what should we expect from him? What does he provide for us? What does he do for us? Um, but oftentimes we have a kind of skewed perception of what he offers us, of what he does for us, what he accomplishes for us, and what we should expect from him. Uh, two of the big errors I've found, uh, the first is this idea that being a Christian means that somehow you have Jesus now on your side, and so he will do pretty much whatever you want him to do. So you have, I mean, whatever, this grocery list of things that you'd like changed, things that you'd like to have happen, and you just expect, all of a sudden now, Jesus has turned into like this fairy to do wizard for you. And he's just going to do what you want him to do. And then when that doesn't happen, because it doesn't happen, right? So you want this situation changed, you want this relationship fixed, you want this out of your life, you want this about you to change. And when those things don't happen the way you wanted them to happen, you get real frustrated at God. You start to think maybe Jesus failed you. Um, one of them, you, I mean, you really didn't 
do Jesus. You really didn't follow him. He never promised you those things. The other big mistake I've seen is thinking that what Jesus does for us primarily concerns us after we die. So this would be kind of your get-out-of-hell-free card. So you come to Christ, you get the card, insurance, you put it in your back pocket, and you're like, this will come in handy in a few years. And then, I mean, really nothing changes for you. I mean, you live your life unchanged and hope that that's going to work out for you when it comes time for you to um, enter into eternity. Uh, and now the scriptures are very clear about that, too, that that's a dangerous game to play. Uh, that's a very dangerous game to play. And so there's all these, these misconceptions about, I mean, what Jesus does for us. What does he do for us? What should we expect from him? What does he promise us? And it's key that we get this right, because if we don't, again, we're going to be frustrated. We're going to be frustrated. We might lose faith. We might wander off the path. We're, our reaction, the way we live, what we look for, what we hope for, is going to be wrong. It's going to be misplaced. In our text this morning, in, in Hebrews 8, we're going to kind of switch gears a little bit. Uh, and the author's going to start going on a new little path here. And it's, it'll be very good for us over these next few weeks as we follow him along. Um, but today in this chapter, he's going to really lay out for us just what exactly does Jesus promise you. I mean, what has he said? This is what I will give you. This is what I'm doing for you. And I think that's going to be so important to us as we try to be faithful, to follow him, uh, and to have the right expectations uh, of what he does for us, who he is for us. So we'll pick up Hebrews 8, verse 1. And we'll start reading. <coughs> Hebrews 8, verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy place, in the true tent the Lord set up, not man. Okay, this is a kind of a special verse here, verse 1, because not often does Scripture say, hey, this is the big idea. But here's what he gives us. This is the main point. Jesus is our high priest. Sometimes Scripture is difficult to read. Sometimes it can be wordy. Chapter 7, anybody? Just real confusing. It's getting lost in the forest. Well, here he kind of clears the table and says, Okay, this is what I'm trying to say. We have a high priest. We have such a high priest. We have Jesus. And as uh, he, he has our high priest, he's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, and he's a minister in the holy places. So he is exercising a ministry on our behalf. Now, as we've walked through Hebrews, we've talked a lot about the priest, uh, the priesthood that God has set up. Um, what happened is God came to Israel um, to, now catch this, a broken people fallen in their own sin, made a mess out of everything they had touched. And he says, hey, I'm going to bring you salvation. I'm going to bring you healing. I'm going to bring you redemption. Sounds like us. And he, he comes to them and says, first I'm going to do it. And he sets up the system for them to find him, to live life with him. And the system includes priests. And these priests were men, again, who acted almost as a bridge between God and man. And so they brought man to God with thanksgiving and sacrifice, and they brought God to man with revelation from him. And there was one high priest who once a year again would go into the Holy of Holies, into the most inner place in the temple where God's presence dwelt, and offer up an atonement sacrifice for their sins. And this was part of a large system, again, that God had set up to come to broken people and say, this is my heart for you. This is my desire for your life. Let me bring you out of the sin and death that you've found yourself in. And the scriptures throughout Hebrews are going to be saying, that whole system was pointing toward Jesus. It was pointing toward what we would have in Jesus as our high priest. So in a sense, God has been through Israel, through all the system, giving us language to understand Jesus. He's been trying to, to frame our imaginations 
So we can understand what Jesus is doing for us. And he says, here's the big point. We have a high priest, and he's currently ministering on our behalf in the throne of God, at God's side for us. And so the, the big idea in all of this is that in Christ, creation has found redemption and fullness. All that God has ever promised his creation, all the goodness, all the redemption, the rescue, the beauty of God has, has come to us through Christ, through his work as our high priest. So if you, if you pay attention to the world around us, um, all of creation really is longing for redemption and fullness. And so I'll just give you a couple examples. If you um, have watched the news at any point in the last few months, if you are on Facebook or Twitter, if you live anywhere than under a rock, you will know this name, Casey Anthony. Okay? Big trial, big verdict, uh, and then everyone explodes about it. People have been following it, zoned in um, for, for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. Um, now, don't want to make a statement on this, but again, a verdict was laid down very recently, and then both sides explode. She's guilty. She's innocent. But what's happening here, very interestingly, is there's a deep longing in the heart of all of us. I mean, every single person, regardless of belief, regardless of past situations, there's this deep longing for this thing we call justice. Every single one of us knows that wrong things need to be made right. That when when wrong things happen, when, when things take place that are wrong, they need to be dealt with and fixed. And the scriptures over and over again are going to say, in, in Christ that happened. In Christ justice was served. And he now reigns as the king, the son, who will one day finally and completely put all things back together the way they should be. Human beings all crave grace and forgiveness. They want to be loved. They want to have people look past their faults and their failures. The scriptures say in Christ, we found that. Redemption, fullness. Humans, all of us, to a man and a woman and a child, every single one of us, they want a full, whole life. This is the reason why um, there are reality TV shows about how to do things better. This is the reason why there are magazines and self-help books. Because we all want to know what's that next thing to do to make us have a, a more full, joyful, whole life. The scriptures over and over and over again are going to say, Jesus, as our high priest, he now has accomplished that. All those things that God has promised us that we all want at the very center of our core are found in Him. And so because of that, the author of Hebrews is going to say, He deserves our worship and our obedience. Understanding who He is and what He has done leads us to worship Him, to praise Him, and then to obey Him, to follow Him. So the, the point is that we have a high priest seated at the, the right hand a minister in the true tent the Lord set up. We have this language of priesthood to, to point us to what Jesus is doing and has accomplished for us. But unlike, the, between those priests and Jesus, there are lots of um, things that aren't similar. There's a big difference between them. Um, and so the, the scriptures in verse 3 are going to start to highlight those differences. So look here in, in verse 3. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Verse 5, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you 
on the mountain. Six, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Okay, so big point in verse six here. Christ's ministry is much more excellent than the old. So what he is doing is better than what the old system of priests did. And again, in Hebrews, as it has always been so far, the option is not between bad and good, but good and better. God had been setting up the system to point us toward Christ, and now in Christ it's all been fulfilled. And he's going to give us two reasons that Christ's ministry is better. The first one is that he serves not on earth, but in heaven. So priests, um, typically throughout history, uh, would serve in the temple on earth, um, what God had set up. But Jesus does not serve in the temple. He is in heaven. And the officers say that's one of the reasons his ministry is better. So look here um, in verse 3. Every high priest offers gifts and sacrifices. For if he were on earth, Jesus, he would not be a priest at all. Since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. So he's saying this. Jesus wouldn't even be allowed to be a priest on earth. He's not from the tribe of Levi, the family of Aaron. He wouldn't even be allowed in there. And there, there are people who do that. Back at this time, the temple was still in existence. There are people who offer gifts according to the law. But Jesus doesn't. He instead works in heaven and offers gifts there. Um, so let's talk just a minute about heaven. Because there's lots of confusion about what heaven is, what heaven isn't. We have largely made heaven a term for eternity. So we will go to heaven. Um, but in the scriptures, um, everything that exists, everything, is divided into two. You have earth and you have heaven. Earth is our space. It's our realm. The earth is man's and the heavens are the Lord's. Heaven is God's type of space. So this means that you cannot get in some kind of rocket ship or shuttle and fly and eventually get to heaven. It's not a place somewhere. Um, in the scriptures, and, and follow me here, heaven is a different kind of space. It's, it's where God dwells. It's his realm. It's his space. It's not a location somewhere. So you, you can't get a map and find it somewhere. It doesn't exist in our space. It's its own separate space. It's where God dwells. Now, in the scriptures, what's interesting is heaven and earth intersect at various points. They come together. They meet. The temple is one of these places where God dwells. The Shekinah glory, His presence. Heaven comes and meets earth. The law, the Torah, God's instruction to man was one of these places where heaven meets earth. Jesus is one of these places, maybe most fully, where heaven meets earth. Fully man, fully God. The final picture in Revelation is heaven and earth becoming one. They, they get married at the end of Revelation. They're, they're no longer separate at all. So a good, a good analogy to think this through, and it, it fails if you stretch it too far like any analogy, um, but the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, you have these two different worlds, and they're not like separate in the same space, right? You open up a wardrobe, all of a sudden you're in the other world. And it's, it's confusing in a bit, and it's unpredictable, it's surprising, but Narnia and the real world intersect at various points. You can get to them. And so when he says he's not serving on earth, he's serving in heaven, he's serving where God dwells. And this is important because if you see here in Exodus 25, he quotes it here in verse 5, um, Moses builds the tent 
Uh, so read temple or tabernacle. The tent um, was what they had constructed before the temple was actually built by Solomon. Um, Moses builds the tent when he's instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. So the, the picture in Exodus is that God actually comes to Moses and shows him what heaven looks like. And then he says, build it like this. Make it look like this. You see this phrase a few times here around Exodus 25. And, and the Israelites loved this. They said, our temple, it's, it's based off the blueprints of heaven. God shows Moses a model and says, build it like this. So the tent, it was a, a model of heaven where the priests served. And now Hebrews is saying, Jesus' ministry is better because he's not serving where? In the model, he's serving in heaven. He's actually there. So this old priesthood, Jesus is better than it. Why? First reason, his location. These priests served and and was simply a model of what heaven actually was. Jesus is there at the right hand of the Father doing his ministry for us. And that brings us to the second reason. Look in verse 6 here. Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. So his ministry is characterized by it gives us better promises and so this leads us into the question what does he promise us what did he accomplish for us what does he do for us let's read verse 7 for if the first covenant had been faultless there would have been no occasion to look for a second but he finds fault with them when he says behold the days are coming declares the lord when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Verse 13. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish. Okay, if you're a writer, you might want to underline or circle this word covenant. Uh, when we see it here in Hebrews 8, verse 6 and verse 7, throughout the quotation from 8 through 12 and verse 13, covenant, covenant, covenant. This word is not only very important here in the chapter, but very, very important throughout scriptures. As we'll see, covenant is the most basic way to understand the relationship between God and between us. Um, so let me define what a covenant is for you. Um, most basically, we say this, a covenant is an agreement between uh, two people, two or more people, involving promises and commitments. Think of almost like a treaty or um, just like a a promise, an oath. It's a a commitment between two people to do certain things. There are two types of covenants. There's what we call bilateral, which means it goes both ways. So someone promises to do something, someone else promises to do something back. There's two parts to the covenant there. And then there's a unilateral covenant, which means one way. I promise, I promise, I promise it's going to happen. I'm saying it's going to happen. And, and we're very familiar with both of them. So if I go to you and say, I will mow your lawn, 
and you make a promise back, I will pay you $50, you can say you've now entered into a covenant. Now, if I don't mow your lawn, most likely you're not going to pay me $50. Why? Because I, I broke covenant. I didn't fulfill my part of the, the, the deal. So you're not going to fulfill your part. Now, we're also familiar with unilateral promises. This is what we say to our kids when we say, hey, no matter what you do, I will love you and protect you and take care of you. When we look at our children and say, no matter what mess you're in, come home. And we'll fix it. Nothing you can do can change my love. Um, marriage is a unilateral covenant. Most people treat it like a bilateral covenant, but it's unilateral in the scriptures. Ephesians 5, it's a picture of the gospel. Christ loving us, giving us grace. You can even see it in our wedding ceremonies, right? For better or for worse. In times of health and sickness. Times of good and times of bad. I will love, I will protect, you are mine. Um, in, the, in antiquity, I mean, so covenants are very ancient. They, they go back almost as far as we can remember in history uh, or, or see documents and evidence of. Um, it would usually, a covenant would be between a king and a subject. And so the king would come to subjects having more power, authority, maybe an army, having a lot of land, and say, if you do certain things for me, um, if you're loyal to me, I will give you land. I promise to give you land. I promise to give you security to protect you. I promise that uh, you'll have some wealth. That even if your land's not producing, I will take care of you. I will feed you. And so it's this relationship um, of, of partnership. You will be mine. I will be yours. And the covenants in the scriptures pick up on that same theme. Um, in fact, covenant, this idea, is the uh, central relationship between God and man in the scriptures. So when God comes to Abraham, he makes a covenant with him. Very similar to the ancient covenants that we know about. In Genesis 12, I will make you a nation. I will bless you. I will multiply you. Through you, all the nations will be blessed. This is a unilateral covenant. One way. You can read in Genesis 12. It's a lot of I language. I will do this. I will do this. I will do this. I will do this. The covenant's actually confirmed a few times throughout Genesis. Um, later on, God makes a more formal covenant with Abraham. Abraham sleeps through it. Just this blatant display that this is one way. God makes the promises. He will do it. He will fulfill it. We remember um, not too long ago in Hebrews, we looked at when God makes an oath by his own name. He swears by his name. In Genesis 22, I will make a nation out of you. No matter what happens, I will do this. And this, the key phrase that you need to think about with a covenant, the covenant between God and man is, as up there behind me, it's on your worship guide. I will be their God and they shall be my people. You find this phrase, this language, throughout all the promises between God and man, all the commitments that God makes to man. And, and I want you to feel the emotion of it. I, I want you to let this phrase sink into your imagination. Um, I will be their God. They will be my people. Notice the pronouns there. God looking at his people say, I'll be theirs. They will be mine. And us looking at God says, He is our God. We are His people. There's this relationship. God says, I will protect you, bless you, keep you safe. I will be their God and, and they will be my people. Now in Sinai, when the priesthood system is set up, when God gives the law, it's a bilateral covenant. So this is where we have the blessing and the curse. God says, if you obey, I will bless you. If you disobey, I will curse you. And now what happens? The Israelites disobey. They disobey and they face God's punishment. You see here in verse 9, they did not continue in my covenant. They broke covenant, 
So I showed no concern for them. So they were punished. They were sent into exile. The covenant of the law, you see, was not perfect or final. This is why in verse 7 he says um, there's a fault in it. We're looking for a second one. And then he quotes here Jeremiah 31, verse 31 through 34. This is actually the uh, longest quote in the book of Hebrews. Interestingly enough, it's the longest quote in the entire New Testament. One single quote of scripture. And the prophet Jeremiah is, is prophesying about a new covenant that would come where God um, fixes what was wrong with the first one, namely that we couldn't keep it, that his people cannot obey it. And in this new covenant, we see all the, the different promises given to us that the, the author of Hebrews is going to say has come true now in Jesus. And so here we go. Let's walk through this prophecy and see, in particular, three promises that Jesus gives us. Um, the first one in verse 10 here. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. He says, I will divinely transform their mind and their heart. I'll divinely transform their mind and their heart. He says, I will do open heart surgery on them. I'll take a broken, dead heart, a heart of stone, and I'll make it living. I'll take their mind that sees things in the wrong way, self-centered, sin-centered, and I will rewire it so they see correctly. I will make them new. So this is what happens when you and I, as we follow Christ, are slowly but surely transformed. What happens typically is, is we don't know it at the time, um, but maybe in, in a few months uh, we react to something in a way differently than we've ever reacted to that before. And we go, whoa, what was that? How was I patient there? And we realize over the last few months... Our heart's been changed as we seek Christ, as we read the scriptures, as we live in community. A slow, steady transformation of the heart, of the mind. Or another way it might happen is, is we realize when um, we uh, are told by a friend, by someone around us, maybe a coworker, they just have noticed a change. They have noticed kind of your, your attitude is different. The way you're treating this person is, is different. Or maybe you meet someone you, you knew years ago but haven't kept in touch with since. And they come and they're shocked by kind of the way you act and the way you talk and the way you live. Because what's happening here? The promise by Jesus is that in this new covenant, this new relationship that he has established as our high priest, I will change them. Instead of the law being something um, that in the Old Testament you would need to write all over the place and you would bind it even to certain parts of your body, God says, I'm going to write it on their hearts. I'm going to imprint it on their minds. I'll make them new. I'll change them from the inside. Notice, and this is very important, um, obedience doesn't get left behind in the new covenant. So it's not as if God expected us to obey in the first one, and now we're just kind of off the hook, we've been forgiven, and so we just kind of get to do what we want to do. No, God all along said, you're going to obey, you need to do what's right, I'm leading you into life. The difference is now God has allowed us to, he's made a way for us to go forward. And you ask, how does this happen? Um, first, you, you must realize that on the cross, an actual victory was accomplished. 
like something actually historically happened on the cross where Jesus dealt with our sin and defeated the stronghold that it had on us so that when we become a Christian, when he finds us, when we become his, let's just say we're free. We're, we're, it's, we're free. It's been dealt with. That we're no longer in slavery. We're alive. We're transformed. And the scriptures say the Holy Spirit is given to us, beating inside of us. And so it's a, a common Christian experience to, to even want to disobey and want to go away continually and habitually and have something inside of you or around you pulling you back constantly, saying, You're not going to. No, you're mine. No, you're mine. He's writing laws on our minds and our hearts. So divinely transform mind and heart. The second promise here, verse 11. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. Second promise, an intimate knowledge of God. An intimate knowledge of God. It's, it's often noticed that knowing in the Hebrew Scriptures is... Uh, the same word often used for sexual intimacy. It's this very intimate participation with somebody else. Uh, and so I think two levels here are working. He says, they'll know me because all throughout history I've been giving them shadows. I've been trying to paint them a picture of who I am. But again, Hebrew says what? On the cross in Jesus, we see God most clearly. This is his heart. This is who he is. Self-sacrificing love. Giving himself up for us. We see him. We know Him. And we're drawn into a relationship with Him where we feel His presence. We speak to Him. Communicate with Him. We feel Him move and tug in us. We feel Him guide and direct. This is going to have this intimate knowledge of me where they're no longer going to look to their neighbor or their brother, most likely people in the the community of God's people and have to tell them know the Lord. Why? Because all of God's people will know the Lord. Will know Him. And then this last one, verse 12. I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. The promise is that we'll be completely forgiven and our sins will be defeated. Our sins will be defeated. The promise is that all of our darkness all of our, our wrongdoing, all of the shame and the, the dark spots in our consciences and our souls, all of that will be dealt with for us, has been dealt with on the cross. So you and I stand completely forgiven. Completely forgiven. Nothing but love flowing from the Father. This Romans 8. Um, no condemnation. There's no wrath to be had. Why? Because it was dealt with. On the cross, it was dealt with. All of it. Even your future sins, it was dealt with. There's no wrath. There's no... You will never, ever, according to the Scriptures, be punished by God. You will not do something wrong. God goes, oh, I've got to get him for that. I'm going to send this his way. Why? Because it was sent Jesus' way. It's been dealt with. Now, the Scriptures would say this. Uh, you can be disciplined by God, but there is a huge difference between discipline and punishment. The difference mainly is attitude and stance. You punish someone you want to see suffer. You punish someone out of vengeance and wrath. You discipline someone who you love violently. Who you love so much that you would even cause them pain or discomfort to see that they get what's best for them. There's a huge difference. The promise is that, that one day in this new covenant, 
sins are going to be dealt with, be taken care of, transform mind and heart, that all the things that once slaved us will not slave us, that we are free to be obedient and experience life and joy, that we will know Him and will be forgiven. These are the promises of the the covenant in verse 13. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what's obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish. And so the author of Hebrews says this in, in chapter 8. He says, here's the main point. We have a high priest. He's Jesus. He's better than the old priest. And he has accomplished what God has promised us. Namely, transformation, forgiveness, intimate relationship. And so when we come to Christ. Um, we know what not to expect. We can avoid frustration. We can avoid doubt. Because we don't expect Him to do everything we ask Him to do. And we don't expect Him to leave us alone for the next 40 years until we die. He says, here's what I've promised you. i promised that I'm going to come in and I'm going to work on you. I'm going to work on you. I promise that I'm going to draw near to you. I promise that I'm going to forgive you, that you'll feel freedom and forgiveness, love and grace. I will be their God. They will be my people. So again, the end of Revelation, there's this beautiful picture. Heaven and earth, these two separate spaces, are married at the end of Revelation. They become one. There's this big wedding ceremony. And they're married. And then the big picture is God is now dwelling with his people. Now there's not one or two places where the heaven and earth intersect, but they're together permanently. To where the revelation would say, um, there's not even a sun. He is the sun. He is so bright. His presence is so strong. And then you see this phrase once again as the scriptures close in Revelation. And he is their God, and they are his people. God comes to man and says, let me make a covenant with you. One way. And the scriptures are saying here as loud as they possibly can. It happened. That's who Jesus is. That's what he's doing as our high priest, offering up his sacrifice before God in heaven. <coughs> That's what he's promised us to do. And so once again, this leads us into worship and obedience. We worship him, we praise him, and then we obey and we follow him. That's what we do on a weekly basis, what we set up our service to be like. So in just a moment, I'll pray. We'll take communion. Now in the Gospels, when Jesus is having this Last Supper, he says the blood is the blood of the what? New covenant. He says, my blood is, is part of what's making this happen here, this Jeremiah 31 thing. These promises coming to you. And so we worship. We take communion. We sing songs. And then we're dismissed and we go out and we obey. We follow. We say, transform me. We say, come close to me. Where, where do I need to go? What do I need to do? What do I need to change? We worship and we obey. Why? Because here's the main point. We have such a high priest who right now is in the Father's presence ministering on our behalf a perfect, final, beautiful ministry. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the scriptures that you've given us. We thank you most of all for what you've accomplished, what you've done through your Son on the cross, through his resurrection, through his ascension to your side. We pray that um, these ideas and these concepts would be more than words on a page, would be more than just interesting things to think about, to think through, um, but would be realities in our life that change us in a fundamental way.
that change how we experience you, that change how we live our lives, that change how we worship and joy and celebration, that change how we obey with open hands, willing to sacrifice anything. We thank you that you have in your grace decided that we would be yours and you would be ours. And there's not much more than that but to rest and to go towards you as hard as we can. We love you and we need you. That's in your son's beautiful and saving name that we pray. Amen.